Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 10, Phlogiston, a burning question. In this episode, we shall discuss more research on gases and why things burn. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We continue in this episode to see the decline of alchemy and the rise of chemistry, and even more, a practical use for gas research. In the last episode, Robert Boyle discovered a key relationship between gas pressure and volume. Let's go further with this idea. Let's heat up water and fill a heavy-duty metal canister with steam. Then let's run cold water over the canister. The steam inside the canister condenses into a few drops of water, and the rest of the volume inside the chamber is essentially a vacuum. That is, practically zero gas pressure inside. Now, imagine this canister is cylindrical, with a top that can slide up and down the walls of the canister. When we chill the steam, the steam condenses inside the canister into water and the pressure inside drops. With this drop in pressure, the movable top slides down into the canister to equalize the gas pressure to the outside. If we reheat the canister, then the top slides upward with the expanding gas inside. Now, let's add a piston rod to the movable top and connect that rod to machinery. We have mentally constructed a steam engine. And that's exactly what an English engineer, Thomas Savory, did in 1698 in real life. His contraption was a dangerous machine, using high-pressure steam that was difficult to handle at the time. It was designed to remove water from the coal mines, or, as the patent on his invention said, a new invention for raising of water and occasional motion to all sorts of millworks by the important force of fire, which will be of great use for draining of mines. The major problem with it was that technology for sealing parts together hadn't reached the level necessary for reliability. Savory's hired blacksmith, Thomas Newcomen, improved the design sufficiently within a decade or so, and then the mining and marsh draining industries began to use it. The Industrial Revolution had slowly begun, harnessing machinery and fuel to do the heavy lifting, both figuratively and literally. This interest in machinery and burning fuel for industrial applications renewed interest in fire, which returns to us as a theme, as I mentioned in Episode 2. Once again, natural philosophers, chemists among them, asked, What is fire? Why do some things burn and others don't? What is combustion really? In the 1660s and 1670s, Robert Hooke, Robert Boyle's former assistant, experimented with combustion and respiration. He burned substances in closed containers containing water as well, and discovered that the air is used up, its volume decreases, and the burning ceases. He found that animals and birds in a closed container die eventually when some of the air is used up. Hooke's belief from these experiments was that air contained some kind of material similar to saltpeter required for burning and breathing. John Mayow took this idea further in 1674 and suggested a nitro-aerial spirit in air 
made of ultrafine particles. Robert Boyle rejected Mayow's nitro-aerial spirit idea because saltpeter is quite different from air. This whole new atomistic view of matter permeated educated European society. John Dryden, an English poet, wrote Ode to St. Cecilia's Day in 1687. This particular saint's day was celebrated with musical concerts, so the poem is an ode to music. But Dryden instilled a very 17th century model of science directly into the stanzas. Here is part of the first stanza. When nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay, and could not heave her head, the tuneful voice was heard from high, Arise ye more than dead. Then cold and hot and moist and dry, in order to their stations leap, and music's power obey. Dryden wrote about a heap of atoms, but combined with the Aristotelian four qualities, cold, hot, moist, and dry. Later, in 1739, the German-English composer, George Friedrich Handel, set Dryden's poem in cantata form. These words form part of the tenor recitative. Dove Rosenschein, an opera composer, singer, flautist, and general student of history, generously offered to sing it for us. Here is a selection. When nature underneath a heap of churning atoms lay and could not heave her head the tuneful voice was heard from her Then cold and hot and moist and dry in order to the stations leap. Then cold and hot and moist and dry in order to the stations leap. And the music's Thanks so much. In 1669, Johann Joachim Becher, a German chemist, attempted to reorganize the Aristotelian and alchemical ideas of fire as an element, and sulfur as a principle of combustion. 
One of his ideas was that there were really three kinds of elemental earth, not one. One of these earths was terra pinguis, Latin for fatty earth, which contained the burning principle. There was also a mercurial earth, terra fluida, and a vitrifiable or glassy earth called terra vitrescibile. Acids contained a principle of acidity. It was all rather vague, though, for it wasn't clear if these principles were actual elements or philosophical qualities. Surprisingly, there was a correspondence to the Chinese five element theory. A generation later, one of Becher's disciples, Georg Ernst Stahl, called this principle of burning phlogiston, from Greek to set on fire, and invented a whole explanation of combustion. Stahl decided that flammable objects had lots of phlogiston, and when something burned, the phlogiston escaped into the air. The residue, say ash, left behind didn't burn because it lost all its phlogiston. Wood has phlogiston and burns, but ash doesn't, so cannot burn. Stahl added a new and most interesting aspect to his model that is, rusting and corrosion is a type of burning. So a metal had phlogiston also and rusted, so that phlogiston slowly escaped from the metal. The residue left behind, the rust, corrosion, or calx, C A L X, as it was called, had no phlogiston left and didn't rust or burn any further. What was fascinating here is that Stahl's phlogiston explained how to win or smelt a metal from its ore. Take a rocky piece of ore which has little phlogiston. Heat it with charcoal, which has lots of phlogiston, and it burns. The charcoal transfers its phlogiston to the ore, which turns into metal with lots of phlogiston, and the charcoal, having lost its phlogiston, is now merely ash. It's a chemical reaction with an explanation. So here are more examples of phlogiston reactions. Heat limestone, and it converts to quicklime by absorbing phlogiston from the air. Heat soda, what we call sodium carbonate, and it converts to caustic soda, also called lye, by absorbing phlogiston from the air. Heat potash, and it converts to caustic potash by absorbing phlogiston from the air. When all three of these products are left uncovered, they lose their caustic nature by slowly leaking the phlogiston they contain back into the air. The air around the chemical transfer of phlogiston was just a transfer medium. That is, the air was just a way to move phlogiston from one substance to another. But the air has a maximum capacity phlogiston in the same way that there is a maximum humidity amount of water that air can hold. Air can become saturated with phlogiston. We see this effect when we burn a candle in a sealed glass jar. When the candle burns, the phlogiston leaves the candle and enters the air. Eventually, the air reaches maximum phlogiston capacity and the candle cannot burn anymore. So, to review, lots of phlogiston means flammable and little phlogiston means non flammable. This scheme seemed to fit most of the observations about burning and rusting, so most chemists agreed that the phlogiston model was likely true. There was one major problem with the phlogiston theory. Why would burning things lose weight as they lost phlogiston? Sounds reasonable. But why would metals corroding gain weight as they lost phlogiston? Sounds peculiar. How do you explain one type of phlogiston transfer as a weight loss, but the other as a weight gain? 
Some chemists suggested that there were two types of phlogiston, one with positive weight for burning paper, fats, oils, and wood, but one with negative weight for rusting iron and corroding copper or silver. And some philosophers made dad jokes, levity, about the gravity of this situation. Yet the situation was a relatively small sticking point in the early 18th century because chemists were not generally interested in detailed quantitative measurements. Weight wasn't an important property to them, unlike appearance, taste, or smell. But given the attention paid to fire and heat, plus Edme Mariotte's discovery of the temperature as a variable in air pressure, the temperature of a substance was definitely an important property. So we find the standardization of the thermometer. Already known for some decades, the thermometer was carefully refined at the end of the 17th century. Guillaume Amonton actually used Mariotte's pressure-temperature relationship to make an air-based thermometer in 1699. Daniel Fahrenheit invented the mercury thermometer in 1714 rather than alcohol or water or even brandy as the expanding liquid, though both alcohol and mercury were common for centuries thereafter. As to a fixed scale for standard units, Christian Huygens suggested using the two points freezing water and boiling water. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Fahrenheit instead used the coldest temperature he could make, which was ammonium chloride dissolved in melting ice, as the zero point, or zero degrees, now Fahrenheit. Anders Celsius defined boiling water as zero degrees, and melting ice as 100 degrees in 1742. Linnaeus, better known for his botanical and zoological classifications, reversed it to zero degrees for ice and 100 degrees for boiling water in 1745, essentially the Celsius scale of today. With this new thermometer tool, natural philosophers began examining how temperature varies when different proportions of different substances are mixed. It turns out that if you mix one volume of water with one volume of mercury, the collection of the two has a temperature closer to the original water. The Scottish chemist, Joseph Black, then decided that the amount of heat, different from the temperature, is a quantifiable property. We see that mercury has a lower capacity to store heat than water, and that water has a constant temperature while it melts, an experiment which you may have performed in a high school chemistry class. This release of hidden heat during the melting process gives the name latent heat to that hidden heat water contains. Black presented his research in 1762, and this is one of the founding moments in what we call thermodynamics, that is, the movement of heat around. He may have even helped James Watt build his vastly improved steam engine. But back to gases. 
Natural philosophers knew of the various airs, spirits, and vapors that von Helmont collectively called gases. They were impossible to isolate, though. So an Anglican priest who was educated also in natural philosophy invented the answer. Stephen Hales, in the early 1700s, demonstrated the pneumatic trough. Imagine a narrow-necked glass bottle filled with water, suspended in the air neck downward and completely immersed in a water-filled tub. Then insert an external pipe bent into a U-shape, with one end into the inverted bottle, and the other external end connected to your reaction evolving gases. If this is difficult to visualize, do an internet search for pneumatic trough. The gases enter the pipe, zip up into the bottle, and displace the water out of the bottle. You have trapped your gas, your air, your spirit, or vapor. Suddenly, isolating and observing various gases was practical. Let's return to Joseph Black's research and see how an early chemist's mind operated. Working on his medical doctorate dissertation in the early 1750s, Black was trying to find a solvent to dissolve kidney stones. Caustic materials would work, but would likely destroy the bladder and kill the sufferer. He worked with magnesia alba, what we call magnesium carbonate. Magnesia gave off bubbles of gas, like limestone, in acid, so Black wondered if it was a form of lime. He tried all sorts of acids on magnesia, and it bubbled and formed a salt, but the salt was not lime salt, so magnesia wasn't a type of lime. Mild alkalis, what we call carbonates, bubbled under acids like magnesia did, so was magnesia a mild alkali. To test this, he reacted magnesia with slaked lime, hoping to get a strong alkaline solution like lye. Except it didn't. He got a neutral solution, so magnesia was not an alkali. What was it? Black tried to convert magnesia into lime. He heated magnesia hot enough to melt copper in what was called calcination. It lost seven-twelfths of its weight, but the residue wasn't lime. It wasn't dissolvable in water, and clearly it must have absorbed a lot of phlogiston by heating, but weighed less, and not alkaline like lime. This residue, black reacted with all the same acids and got the same magnesia salts, but no gas bubbles. He recalcined the original magnesia and carefully observed a gas coming off the magnesia. How much of the weight change was from gas leaving, and how much from phlogiston entering? The answer was to trap this gas, or air as the English still called it, but using a pneumatic trough, it just dissolved in the water. Now what? His stroke of genius was to use indirect methods. Weigh the acid and magnesia alone, react them, and weigh the product. It turns out that the weight loss was 7 twelfths, just like calcination. So the entire calcination produced gas, and phlogiston had no effect on the weight. To identify this gas, he let it dissolve in the water and test the resulting solution. It was just gas sylvester, what von Helmont found a century earlier from burning wood, leaving the magnesia. The last test was to weigh a bit of magnesia, heat it to remove the gas sylvester, and dissolve the calcined magnesia in sulfuric acid. To this acidic solution, he added sodium carbonate to neutralize it, and found the same magnesia he started with. What he accomplished was to put back the gas sylvester into the magnesia using soda. So now we know that soda and magnesia both contain gas sylvester. B. 
Because the gas was fixed into these chemicals, he called gas sylvester fixed air. He found that this particular reaction doesn't involve phlogiston. Publication of his work caused a firestorm. Weight loss or gain were suddenly revealed to be important, and the idea of conservation of mass, that the mass of something during a reaction was constant, was shown to be real. He also identified a kind of material identified by the existence of a chemical component. He showed that the particular air was separate from regular air, and maybe there were other airs or gases. Black also showed that the gas from fermentation in a brewery was fixed air, and the gas people and animals breathe out is fixed air. He thus found a link between burning, fermentation, and respiration. So perhaps respiration is actually a form of combustion. Then body heat gets regarded as the heat produced during respiration, a huge biochemical discovery. And yet Black still believed in phlogiston. For there was no other general explanation for combustion. By the 1740s, there was a permanent split between alchemy and chemistry. This was accomplished by French chemists in the Academie des Sciences, trying to actively distance themselves from the wizards and fakers trying to make gold. By being reviewers for scholarly publications. These chemists could be gatekeepers, allowing only real science to be published. The transformation to chemistry was done by reinterpreting alchemical knowledge into reproducible science. One example may serve to illustrate this reinterpretation: mix together nitric acid, silver, and mercury, let it stand for a number of months. The result is what's called Diana's tree of silver needles appearing. From the alchemical perspective. The metal grows, as Aristotle says, akin to rocks growing underground, with a sort of vital spirit forming into a tree-like shape. From the chemical perspective, atoms of silver move around to form crystals mechanically. Similar trees of lead and iron can grow, supporting the chemical conclusion. From here on out, alchemy is practically gone from our story, and it is around this time too that the word chemistry began being spelled C H E, not C H Y. For the century spanning 50 years before and after 1700, we see an intense or perhaps burning fascination with gases, heat, and fire. One model which caught natural philosophers' attention was the phlogiston theory, that burning releases phlogiston, which explained many chemical transformations, but brought some peculiar contradictions that were largely waved away by chemists. In our next episode, we shall meet more gases. And the couple who single-handedly revolutionized chemistry, and then were affected by a political revolution themselves. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. <laughs> <laughs>